Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's Critical Care Podcast. I'm your host, Ashish Khanna. Today, I'll be speaking with Charles Hervey Vacheron, MD, on the article, Increased Incidence of Ventilator-Acquired Pneumonia in COVID-19 Patients, a Multicentric Cohort Study. This was published in the March 2022 Critical Care Medicine. To access the full article, visit ccmjournal.org. Now, Dr. Vasheran is a medical doctor. He's finishing his PhD, and he's with the Department of Anesthesia and Intensive Care at Centre Hospitalier Lyon in Lyon, France. Welcome, Dr. Vasheran, and we are so happy that you are here with us today. Thank you, Dr. Kana, and I'm very happy to be with you too. Great. Now, before we start, do you have any financial or academic conflicts of interest or disclosures to report to our listeners? I have uh, no other disclosure of interest than my patient about analyzing data of intensive care. Perfect. Perfect. You know, patients first, and we all work for our patients. And, you know, especially in the last two years, life has taught us a lot about how to better take care of our patients with COVID-19. So very, very impressed with your work. I think this is really interesting work. All of us have always thought and believed that the incidence of ventilator-acquired pneumonia in coronavirus disease was really, really high. But your study has clearly shown and proven this. Now, I'm going to start with a very basic question why did you choose to study this subject? This is a very interesting question. Thank you for asking me that. I think the beginning of this work comes from the clinical sense that we all have uh, with this COVID patient in intensive care. Briefly, we had a pre-COVID-19 clinical sign when uh, we, we had a pneumonia, bacterial pneumonia, classical pneumonia, we had a sign of respiratory distress and uh, we intubated the patient for respiratory distress. We maintained this uh, patient in last like uh, five, six days under mechanical ventilation and they were after that okay and could be extubated. With COVID-19, we had to revise our view of the pneumonia and viral pneumonia with patients which have show signs of distress very, very lately. And after the intubation, we have a long phase of mechanical ventilation, mainly because we cannot extubate them because of this ventilator-associated pneumonia. Uh, I want to understand if this was only a bad a point of view of the clinician, and I wanted to, to show that this was not only on the field that we have had problems with this ventilator-assisted pneumonia, but also on a global scale, and to understand that there is a real problem with this pneumonia. Very interesting. Now, this is, is a great introduction for your work. I see that you used something called REA, R-E-Z-O, or REA, Rezo Surveillance Network for your analyses. Tell our listeners more about this database. How big is this database and what sort of data is available for analyses in this database? 
Once again, thank you for this great question because none of this work could have been done without the, the physician and the practitioner of the real Rezo surveillance network. Briefly, the intensive care units in France, which devoted to fight against the nosocomial infection or the ICU-acquired infection, join our Rezo. And for each patient they include, they admit in their intensive care or not the, the small length of stay, like under two days, we don't require us to admit the patient, but all the patients which have a length of stay of more than two days are included into our database. And we ask very simple questions, like when the patient was intubated, is there ventilator-acquired pneumonia, is there bloodstream infection, is there antibiotic at the admission? And with this simple question, we are able to have a panel of the ICU-acquired infection. We are a réseau with like approximately a hundred centers in France. And recently I have worked on the couverture of the French ICU and it's approximately 20 to 30% of the ICU bed in France, which is pretty okay to be representative of the French ICU population. Interesting. So it looks like it's a very detailed database and very representative of the French ICU population. And obviously, those are very important features of a good database. Now that you've done this important work, can you summarize for our listeners the main findings of your analysis, please? Of course. The main finding of our analysis showed that a COVID-19 patient matched with a non-COVID-19 patient have an increased risk of ventilator-acquired pneumonia more than two times the risk of ventilator-acquired pneumonia. To be more specific, the, in hours, the incidence rate for VAP was around 15 VAP episodes for 1,000 ventilation day in the non-COVID-19 patients. And for the COVID-19 patients, it was around 25. So therefore, this, height, this increased incidence was well characterized. We also focus on the time of occurrence of this uh, ventilator-acquired pneumonia, and we found that this was globally similar. This occurred similarly at uh, other pneumonia around the ninth to ninth day, and for the first uh, ventilator-acquired pneumonia. So we have VAP for the ventilator-acquired pneumonia, which occurs approximately at the same time, which has an increased incidence and which have approximately the same bacterial ecology. We have the same germ with the same panel of resistance in our COVID-19 patients. In this study, the only difference between ventilator-acquired pneumonia on the COVID-19 patient versus on the non-COVID-19 patient was the increased incidence. That's the only difference. So, again, just to summarize, the biggest difference here is the increased incidence of ventilator-acquired or ventilator-associated pneumonia in COVID-19 patients no difference in the microbial patterns and resistance patterns to antibiotics, correct? Exactly. Okay, great. So I also saw that you tested for differences between the first and second episodes of ventilator-acquired pneumonia 
Why did you specifically want to do this? And what is the relevance of that finding? This was a basic consideration that among the literature, we mainly focus on the first episode of ventilator acquired pneumonia, maybe because we don't have a lot of second episodes. Using the RIA Réseau database, we have a large panel of patients undergoing the ICU, and we were able to study this second episode of that. What was interesting is obviously there was an increased incidence, maybe a little less significant than on the first episode, but we also found an increased risk around the eighth day of having a second episode of VAP. When on the non-COVID-19 patient, the modelization of the hazard rate of VAP was pretty linear. We have a V-curve, an inverse V-curve of hazard rate of VAP for the second episode, similar to the first episode, only on the COVID-19 patient. When on the non-COVID-19 patient, we have a linear hazard rate of VAP after the first episode. Charles, tell me, were you surprised when you saw the results of your analysis? And why is, you know, it looks like there's a big, big difference between your COVID-19 group and, and non-COVID-19 group in terms of ventilator-associated pneumonia. Are you surprised or did you expect these outcomes? Honestly, Dr. Kana, we were not surprised of this incidence. As I explained in the introduction, this work was mainly directed from a clinical sense, clinical feeling of the patients uh, that we were taking in charge. The interesting point that we were not uh, able to anticipate was the absence of discrepancy between both groups in bacterial ecology. We have globally the same germ in the COVID-19 patients and the non-exposed COVID-19 patients, which is a little surprising because we might have a lot of more uh, germs that are identified globally on the immunocompromised patients. But we, and the, the other findings that which was not expected was right in a, the incidence of uh, VAP on the second episode, which has a very different curve uh, compared to the second episode, the non-COVID-19 patient. I hope and I, I am clear in my explanation. Yes, certainly. Thank you. That is clear. And, and thank you so much for that. I'm going to now talk a little bit about patient characteristics in your COVID-19 and non-COVID-19 groups. You know, in any analysis like that, the first thing the readers and the peer reviewers look at is whether your two groups were appropriately matched because it's very easy to have confounders. And I'm looking at your matching criteria, age, sex, you know, you looked at acute physiology scores, you look for admissions from community or nursing homes, antibiotics at admission, time from admission to mechanical ventilation, and then you looked at, you know, length of ICU stay and quite a lot of other good matching criteria in your two groups. The one thing that I don't see here is the depth of sedation and the use of muscle relaxants. And that one thought came to me when I looked at your paper. And we do know that ventilator-associated pneumonia has been shown to be more in patients who are intubated and paralyzed and or deeply sedated. Do you feel that this is something that could have been matched for? Is that something that would have changed your outcomes? Thank you for your question. Yes, indeed, there is several uh, matching criteria that could have been done on these patients. 
We could add the presence of corticotherapy, for example, the muscle relaxant therapy, all the risk factor of uh, ventilator-acquired pneumonia. The reason we didn't choose them is very simple. It's because, as I explained to you, we are working on the national surveillance network, the REA-RESO network, and the physicians are giving their data based on the benevola. On their free time, they are collecting the data, and therefore we cannot ask them a lot of different variables. And we have each uh, meeting to ask us which data we ask them to collect. And these data, while very interesting, are not actually collected from the real Rezo surveillance network. That's why we couldn't have uh, occurred, uh, have uh, asked them. The question is, would have been changed our results? Maybe, but not in a significant way, to my opinion. We know that in the IRDS, we have an increased incidence of ventilator-acquired pneumonia, but which goes to around the 18 to 20 VAP per, per thousand ventilation day. And the use of corticosteroid is currently highly debatable on the occurrence on these ventilator-acquired pneumonia. Therefore, this might have changed our result, but I don't think that will drastically penalize the conclusion of the article. Sure. And I also see that in your patient outcomes, your your total duration of mechanical ventilation, you know, the, your median days on mechanical ventilation is significantly higher in your COVID group. And so is your length of ICU stay. Again, that is expected. We know that COVID patients, you know, they stay in the ICU longer. They stay on mechanical ventilation longer. Were you able to adjust for these factors in your final analysis? No, no, no. We did not adjust it for this factor. And to understand why, we have to understand the competing risk analysis. So thank you for letting me explain these problematics. The competing risk is the presence of factors that influence on the outcome. Here, for example, we know that having a ventilator-acquired pneumonia will increase the duration of mechanical ventilation. Therefore, they are intricate we cannot adjust on the uh, duration of megadigal ventilation because we will create a bias regarding our patients. In the competing risk analysis, we simulate the hazard rate of the extubation and on the intubation, cumulative incidence, and therefore we are able to accurately visualize the occurrence of the, this event independently of the occurrence of the other event, which is the extubation. This is a statistical methodology, and I hope I'm clear and I can explain further if you want. Thank you so much. I did want you to talk about that, and that is very, very useful for our listeners. Thank you. This is great work. Again, the more I look at it, the more I feel that this is going to be important for the critical care community all over the world. What do you want critical care doctors and providers all over the world who read your paper to have as a take-home lesson? And how do you feel your work is going to change practice in ICUs and how we manage these patients? Hard question. Very hard question because we are we we are descriptive. We are more descriptive than explicative. 
what we can say is that the concern of the physician about this ventilator acquired pneumonia among COVID-19 patients concerned to be taken into account in the management of our patients. Prevention of these are very, very, very important. There is no need to change my beliefs antibiotics for this ventilator acquired pneumonia because the ecology is globally the same. Some should ask whether we should have more aggressive strategy to prevent this VAP. For example, I could cite the decontamination, selective oral decontamination, which has shown to be helpful to prevent VAP. And I can say the good performance of all the strategy we already know and prevention of the VAP. This is the main message that this paper occurs, and maybe I believe you will have this question asked by this paper. Are these uh, ventilator-acquired pneumonia uh, have an influence of the occurrence of death in this patient? I mean, we know since several years that on the global ICU population, the VAP are accountable for 2-3% of the death uh, of the patient in the work of 2011 by Debacker and Hall. Very good work. And my question currently is, are these VAP really the same as a VAP on our COVID-19 uh, or non-COVID-19 patient? And do they penalize the patients more? We have several patients on our clinical and our daily patient care that we believe that could be extubated and going out well when they are extubated, but they are performing a VAP. They increase drastically their length of hospital stay and sometimes they die after their, their VAP. So the question, I think that this paper raised mainly the question that are these VAP different on the attributable mortality than the conventional VAP? Yes, that's a very, very important question about attributable mortality. I think this is something that we very often forget and don't think about when we look at analyses like this. So thank you for bringing that up. I think that's really, really important. Now, Charles, my last question to you today is really going to be, Ideas for other analyses, you know, you say it uh, and you just told us that this paper is hopefully going to ask more questions and people will think about other analyses to do in this field of ventilator-acquired pneumonia. Do you have any plans of any follow-up analyses? So we are currently trying to understand this attributable mortality. This required a lot of work because we are on a multi-state analysis. I believe that uh, your readers are familiar with this analysis, but briefly, this takes into account the competing risk analysis, but not only in one level, but in multiple levels. The attributable mortality has been studied widely by a German worker, I believe. It's Maya von Kube, which have performed a lot of work on the ICU-acquired attributable mortality of the nosocomial infection. So I believe this is the next question we will ask us. And on a more pragmatic level, I believe that the main follow-up study which would follow this work will be if we are able to prevent the ventilator-acquired pneumonia, are we able to reduce the overall mortality? Recently, I think it's work for, from Leon et al. I'm not sure, but 
pretty, uh, I believe it's Leonetal, which has uh, shown on a, a small panel of patients that by preventing the VALP using SDD, selective digestive decontamination, we were able to lower the mortality. I think they, they were, uh, this is my head, but I think they had an hazard ratio around the, with 0.22, so a very, very, very high decrease of mortality. In our COVID-19 patient in ICU, I don't believe that the antiviral drugs or the therapeutics could be as effective as preventing the VAP in our patient. Thank you. Thank you. These are really important points. And, you know, we're coming to the end of this podcast, but do you have anything else that you would like to tell our listeners specific to your study or your work? Read the critical care medicine and all the paper of critical care medicine, which are very interesting. <laughs> Thank you. That's a great <laughs> message. <laughs> exactly. And I can promise our listeners that I did not tell him to say that. He said it himself. So, <laughs> please, please. <laughs> Thank you. This concludes another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's Critical Care Podcast. For this Critical Care Podcast, I'm Ashish Khanna. Thank you so much for listening to us and have a great day. Ashish K. Khanna, MD, FCCP, FCCM, is a staff intensivist and anesthesiologist, associate professor of anesthesiology, and section head for research in the Department of Anesthesiology. Section on Critical Care Medicine at Wake Forest University School of Medicine in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Contact a customer service representative at 847-827-6888 or visit sccm.org slash membership for more information. The SCCM podcast is the copyrighted material of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, and all rights are reserved. Find more episodes at sccm.org slash podcast. This podcast is for educational purposes only. The material presented is intended to represent an approach, view, statement, or opinion of the presenter that may be helpful to others. The views and opinions expressed herein are those of the presenters and do not necessarily reflect the opinions or views of SCCM. SCCM does not recommend or endorse any specific test, physician, product, procedure, opinion, or other information that may be mentioned.